Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we'll be talking about forest restoration and the role of biotechnology in that. Today we'll be speaking with Ellen Crocker. She's a postdoctoral scholar and works in the Department of Forestry here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, and has a particular interest in forest health issues. So welcome, Uh, Ellen, glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, we we have a lot of interest, of course, in forests and forest health, but before we move into that area, uh, there are several um, topics that I wanted to touch on in your background. And first, maybe you could give us a a bit of an explanation as to your your professional interests, maybe even a little bit about why you became a a plant pathologist and a a tree expert, basically. Sure. Um, So I have a PhD in plant pathology. Um, All of my dissertation work was actually working with uh, invasive species in a marsh wetland context, uh, trying to figure out why they're invasive um, to better manage them. Uh, they're a serious problem all over in a bunch of different ecosystem types, including forests. Uh, so that's what I did for my dissertation work. But my interest in plant pathology comes from my work between undergraduate and graduate uh, studies, working with sudden oak death. So for anyone who's not familiar with sudden oak death, it's a uh, oomycete disease that's wiping out oaks on the West Coast. I worked with... Uh, UC Berkeley, the Garbolato Lab at UC Berkeley, uh, looking at that disease and also doing some extension work surrounding communicating what's going on and what are some steps that people can be taking uh, to manage it. So that's where my interest in all of this comes from. Right now, I'm working with the Forest Health Research and Education Center located at the University of Kentucky. It's a collaboration between the University of Kentucky's Department of Forestry 
and the U.S. Forest Service, as well as the Kentucky Division of Forestry. So the idea of this center is to bring together researchers in biological sciences, as well as social sciences, and education and outreach specialists to increase the sustainability of um, the eastern uh, forests. So trying to find genetics-based tools, um, as well as economic uh, resources to foster that and um, build uh, forest restoration. Yeah, yeah. So we, in fact, we work together on, on uh, one or two projects, Ellen. And uh, so we're certainly pleased to have you as part of our, our uh, team here at uh, the University of Kentucky's College of Agriculture, Food and Environment. So um, in fact, one of the projects we're working on is uh, together is, is Ag Biotech Day. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what, uh, what's, what's coming here in a few months? Definitely. I'm really excited about it. Um, Our idea going into this is that a lot of people don't know what biotechnology is, and they don't know how it's being applied. Um, People have heard some buzzwords, might have read some things online, but the general public just doesn't know what's happening even here in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, at our own university. So our idea was to bring high school students to campus and have them tour labs and learn from the graduate students and postdoctoral scholars in those laboratories. What are they doing? Why is it important? And how does it affect uh you know, a bigger, a bigger uh, frame of things. So we will have, I think, uh, we're going to cap it around 75 students uh, coming to the University of Kentucky, uh, the plant sciences, plant pathology, entomology departments have labs who've uh, decided to open up and invite students in to see their work. Um, and my hope is that it will just give students a totally different perspective, give them a chance to ask questions and have them answered uh, by specialists in those areas, um, and also open up some eyes to potential future career opportunities and paths of study at the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we, uh, in our initial planning, I know one of the um, sort of the foci of, of, of this whole effort of Ag Biotech Day was to sort of humanize biotechnology. There can be a lot of dissension and and even uh, unpleasant debate in the social media. And I, I know that, you know, you and I see it, uh, biotechnology, not in that way at all, but more as a set of tools that can help us do good things. And so uh, we thought it would be important to humanize biotechnology for uh, young people where they could just go and meet real, uh, you know, graduate students uh, similar to their own age, not just a few years older, and uh, and see some of the excitement and learn something about the projects that uh, – that are taking place at UK. So yeah, I'm excited too. You, you, now you also have been involved in uh, another, another initiative that I knew very little about until I prepared for this podcast. Uh, You are, uh, you were one of the hosts for the STEM conference for middle school girls uh, that occurred uh, just uh, a couple days ago. Is that right? Yes. Yes. It was fantastic. Uh, So Uh, This is called the Expanding Your Horizons Conference. So uh, probably some of the listeners from different parts of the country and maybe even the world have participated on previously. So Expanding Your Horizons is an international network of hands-on STEM conferences for middle school girls. So the whole idea is to, uh, that's middle school is an age at which a lot of young women kind of lose interest in science. And obviously there's not enough uh, 
women in a lot of uh, the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields at a higher level. So the question is, how do you increase retention? How do you keep uh, science interesting and engaging for uh, young women at that age especially. Uh, so these Expanding Your Horizons conference has been had all over the U.S. at 30, uh, 38 different states and several countries, but this is the first one that we've had in Kentucky. Uh, so myself, mm -hmm. Dr. Susan Odom, and Dr. Bradford Condon uh, got an NSF EBSCOR grant to host one here. And the really cool thing about this conference and why one of the reasons I was excited to do it is that not only do these middle school girls have this day of hands-on inquiry-based uh, workshops, but those workshops are led by UK students, so undergraduates and graduate students, that throughout the semester had been working with me as well as their faculty mentors to come up with different uh, workshops that would test a hypothesis or solve a problem so that the young women who attended would get some window into what it was like actually doing science. So not just the um, kind of learning process, but how do you test a hypothesis? Um, and be exposed to all of these uh, UK students who are just a little bit older than them, but really relatable. So they can ask them questions they might have about what's college like, um, how do they need to prepare, and just shift some of their uh, mental images of what scientists look like um, by mm -hmm. providing those role models. So this yeah. past weekend, we had about 120 uh, girls from all over Kentucky coming or uh, that came here, including uh, one group of about 40 students that had to drive four hours to get here from the western part of the state. Um, and we had about 50 UK students leading these workshops, wow. as well as another 50 or so volunteers that walked around with the groups of uh, girls all day, um, helped them feel comfortable on campus. Yeah. Well, you should should certainly be very proud. You you all have, have uh, initiated that that uh, effort. Yeah, in fact, uh, scientific societies, uh, at least in the realm of biology, uh, are you know certainly paying attention to uh, gender issues in the field of science. I, I know in my own society, our, our own society of the American Phytopathological Society, there's. Uh, uh, sort of an awareness of, of the attrition that takes place between graduate school and, um, you know, the professional level of uh, professors and other professional uh, plant pathologists, where the numbers of females uh, or the percentage of females typically seems to go down somewhat. And so, uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's an issue that, um, many of us in scientific societies are paying attention to and and it's wonderful to provide these really positive role models for for um, uh, young women at you know at this these early ages so congratulations to you for doing that well, thank you it was a great experience um, I think we tried to emphasize the role models to the young women who came as well as the fact that you know we have major problems out there in the world and if we want to solve them we want to have the best of everyone regardless of what gender or race, ethnicity someone is, um, we need everyone, um, the best minds, uh, to, to reach those solutions. Hmm. Yeah, good ad attitude. So uh, let's, let's talk about biotechnologies. I know your principal interest is, is really more in conservation and forest restoration. Um, so give us an introduction into the relationship of biotechnology to or biotechnologies, plural, to uh, forest restoration and conservation in general. 
Well, I think forestry and forest science is on the threshold of a major change when it comes to biotechnology, especially with regard to tree breeding, but also in other ways. So there, you know, as in any field, there are many different ways in which this new molecular toolbox is being used and reasons for why it's being used. I think when people hear about biotechnology, the first thing that comes to mind is genetic engineering in the context of industry use by large agricultural companies. Uh, But Forest restoration is a totally different area uh, where biotechnology is increasingly becoming uh, important. So this is being driven by ecological as well as sometimes economic goals, but it typically doesn't come from industry. So it's a lot of universities and nonprofit organizations that are leading the charge to use these tools to increase the sustainability of particular tree species, as well as forests in general. Uh, So this could be in response to invasive threats, insects and diseases that are wiping out trees, and using biotechnology to uh, breed trees that are resistant or stop some of those threats. Um, It can also be just better understanding the trees that are present, the diversity of forests, and how they're interacting with different components of that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in the invasive threats. We'll, uh, we'll table that for just a minute. What, um, because I want to drill down a bit on that, but I'm, I'm interested in uh, better understanding of, of the forest tree ecos- forest ecosystem itself. What, what are some, give, give us an example of a way um, that, that, that you can achieve a better understanding of, of a forest ecosystem through a biotechnology tool? Well, I think one of the ways that's happening is that we're learning more about the genetic diversity of forests. So before, uh, pretty recently, there wasn't a lot of genetic work done on trees. And part of that is that uh, those genomes are hard to work with, or those trees are hard to work with from a genetics perspective. Um So a lot of the new tools are giving scientists the ability to learn about the diversity that's present and how trees are responding to stresses that are out there. How do they respond to environmental stresses like drought, like salinity? And how can those be used to breed trees that are better at uh, dealing with those problems. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, how do trees naturally respond to diseases and insects? Trees that are resistant, why is that? And how can we use that information to breed trees that are um, more resistant to some of the invasive threats that we've got coming in? Mm-hmm. So you, was, uh, one of the things that uh, we share together is, uh, well, you, your uh, Journal Club, the one that you've you've organized uh, here on campus for uh, forest health uh, interests. You, one of the papers that you provided to us was uh, a review that's entitled "A Bigger Toolbox: Biotechnology in Biodiversity Conservation." And some of the listeners may be interested in in uh, obtaining that. So that paper outlined a number of different ways that um, biotechnologies could be useful in. in you know, some rather insightful kinds of things. So, so for example, tell me, like, I'm really, I'm outlining this, but asking you to react to it, Ellen. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we had a particular species of tree or plant that we wish to conserve that needed conservation attention, um, using a biotechnology tool might be able to help us 
determine how to best focus our uh, conservation efforts so that we represent as much of the diversity of that species as possible. Is that is that one of the kinds of applications that the biotechnology Definitely. would be helpful with? Definitely. So I think conserving that diversity is part of it. So with uh, forest trees, especially in a restoration context, you want to have a high diversity. So any uh, approaches that would bottleneck that would be a big problem. So, um, for example, if you're trying to uh, figure out how resilient a population is, um, if something were to come in. So, for example, here in Kentucky, we care a lot about white oak. White oak is used in bourbon barrels as well as really important in timber and ecologically as a food source for wildlife. If we're trying to find out how resilient white oak would be if some invasive uh, insect disease came in that could target it, we want to know how diverse white oak is. We want to know where that diversity is present and how we can protect that. Um, and those are all things that uh, the biotechnology toolbox is going to allow us to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, and you used a, a, a term that I, it's, you know, common in biology, bottleneck or genetic bottleneck. Mm -hmm. And so I want to, I want to highlight that for the listeners because um, it's very descriptive. So in other words, if you, if we don't have a clear idea of, of, of the full range of genetic diversity in a species that we're interested in, if we don't understand that genetic diversity and because we can't see it, you know, with our, our eyes, then we might end up selecting white oaks or plants, uh, other plants, to use in a, in a, in a, in a conservation effort that, that represents just a mere bottleneck of what's out there. So I love that term bottleneck, and I was glad you used it. So, so we, by using biotechnology tools, we can understand the full range of genetics that are out, out there and, and more systematically include those in our conservation efforts. And I think that brings up another point that a lot of our responses to things like um, chestnut blight, for those of you who don't know, uh, American chestnut used to be one of the dominant trees in eastern forests until a disease, uh, chestnut blight, came in at the kind of early 1900s and wiped it out. Um, so now you won't see chestnuts in the forests, even though it used to be about a quarter of the trees. Uh, because of this disease. Um, so what we're doing is we're playing catch up with chestnut. We're trying to um, figure out now that those trees are gone, how can we reintroduce them and what are ways to get resistant trees. But now that we have this toolbox, hopefully what we can do in the future is avoid uh, epidemics like that from happening, or at least catch them much sooner so that we don't have to completely reintroduce something. We can preserve uh, the diversity that's present as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's a great lead-in. So we're going to continue on this theme, but uh, let's take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Ellen Crocker from the University of Kentucky. She's a postdoctoral scholar and uh, a good, a dear uh, colleague to, as part of our team here at UK. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, invasive pests and pathogens and, um, in, in forest trees and, and biotechnology. Today, a note about auto wrecks, podcasts, and happy endings. A note to the Talking Biotech podcast comes from Jenny from Bemidji, Minnesota. She says that she was listening to the Talking Biotech podcast while driving late on a snow-covered country road. She hit a patch of black ice and ended up losing control of her vehicle, rolling and landing upside down. 
she was unable to call for help and she was unable to find her phone. But wherever it was, it continued to play the Talking Biotech podcast. She was trapped there for over an hour, cold but unharmed. Thank goodness for airbags. She wrote, I closed my eyes and listened to the podcast. Kevin and Paul kept me company until help arrived. She was able to enjoy two complete episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast and said that the soothing messages of science made a desperate time much more pleasurable. Thank you for letting us know, Jenny, and proud to be your podcast, Jaws of Life. Share your experiences or interests with us at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. And now, back to the podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Ellen Crocker from the University of Kentucky. She's a postdoctoral scholar and uh, very knowledgeable about a broad range of topics relating to forest trees, forest health, uh, restoration of, uh, of trees. And um, so we're thrilled to have you here with us, Ellen. Thanks for joining us. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we, before the break, we were talking about chestnut blight, which is a, you know, a classic and very uh, unfortunate disease that has occurred here and wiped out American chestnuts for the, essentially as a forest tree. Uh, here in in uh, North America, so um, I'm sure there are listeners that don't uh, don't know the relationship between biotechnology as it exists today and and um, American chestnuts. So so why don't you give us some background on that? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, chestnuts were wiped out by a fungus imported uh, from Asia on Asian chestnuts, and they spread through American chestnuts and uh, Basically, by the 1950s, you would not see uh, chestnuts around on the landscape except for uh, stump, uh, little sprouts shooting up from uh, the rootstock of killed trees. Um, in response to this, uh, industry kind of moved on, went to new trees, uh, different species, but uh, conservationists and people looking from the ecological perspective really wanted to bring back American chestnut. How can we breed chestnut trees that are resistant to this deadly fungus? So for many years now, there have been traditional tree breeding programs uh, spearheaded by the American Chestnut Foundation, a nonprofit group. Um, and by traditional tree breeding program, I mean that they started with a hybrid of an American chestnut and a resistant Chinese chestnut. Um, that this hybrid is resistant to the fungus. And then they back cross, so they then breed that. Uh, individual back to American chestnut um, repeatedly to try to get a tree that has the resistance from the uh, Chinese chestnut, but all the other characteristics of American chestnut. Now trees, they live a long time, so this approach is really slow, and it's also filled with trial and error because you can take many years uh, doing this traditional breeding and only later discover that what you thought you had wasn't really resistant or um, test whether something is truly resistant to the fungus. So right now, uh, the American Chestnut Foundation has uh, trees that are 15 16ths uh, American chestnut and 1 16th 
Chinese chestnut um, that they're testing and planting out in the field that that uh, hopefully have good resistance to uh, chestnut blight. But again, these trees are still mixes, so they are a mix of American and chestnut, uh, American and Chinese chestnut. Recently, uh, a group from SUNY ESF, Dr. Powell and Dr. Maynard, uh, have developed a genetically modified chestnut. So they took a few genes from wheat, and um, those those genes uh, give that chestnut, a complete American chestnut, resistance against the fungus. So in a really short period of time, relative to the other traditional tree breeding projects, they were able to make huge progress uh, in an American chestnut tree that is resistant to chestnut blight. Um, so this, I think, is one of the reasons why people are uh, starting to realize the potential of biotechnology in uh, forest restoration, in that these other uh, traditional tree breeding programs are going to take many, many years. Uh, so you can't have a fast response to something. Of course, uh, the uh, genetically engineered uh, chestnut, the American chestnut from SUNY SF, is still in testing phases, so it hasn't been approved. It's um, still being uh, in, tr in a trial phase. But the same kind of thing could be done with a lot of other trees. So elms that have been killed by Dutch elm disease, as well as ash uh, with the emerald ash borer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so what, what has been your experience? Have you, well, m maybe you've not had uh, direct experience on this issue, but, but have you, have you had an experience with um, interacting with the public on this uh, American chestnut trait, which is genetically engineered and seems to be providing a very substantial level of resistance? I mean, I can imagine that in, in the world of forest health, there would be a, a, a quite a wide range of of uh, acceptance of this as a as an option. Now it, it isn't being deployed as you as you've pointed out, but um, but what's been your experience in terms of the public reception um, to this issue? Well, I think in general, um, people who want to see the American chestnut brought back are environmentalists, and they care a lot about these uh, the ecology of these areas. And there are some big differences between forested systems, especially these naturally regenerating forested systems, and agricultural crops. And so I think um, there's some good reasons that people should be uh, looking at risks and weighing those against potential benefits. So agricultural crops are highly managed systems. They're going to be dominated by monocultures of particular non-native plant species that have been carefully bred by humans for thousands of years. Forests, on the other hand, are going to be naturally regenerating, uh, populated by native tree species. They need to be um, working together in a network. They need to be playing important ecological roles as well as economical roles. So any unintended negative consequences of GE trees to the environment might have further reaching impacts than in agricultural systems. But at the same time, uh, the benefits are huge uh, if we could uh, save ash trees from the emerald ash borer, if we could bring back chestnut, which was a really important species for a lot of wildlife. Um, so I think that the potential risks need to be weighed against those potential benefits. Um, one of the, the kind of sticking points with uh, 
trees for restoration is the idea that uh, modified genes are going to escape and contaminate the native uh, trees. Um, and that's a tough one because that's true. That's exactly what people are hoping with American chestnut is that the uh, genetically modified chestnut would mix with the native chestnuts and you would have that high diversity. So you wouldn't have what we mentioned earlier, that bottlenecking effect. Um, you would have a more diverse group of uh, trees that are present rather than less. Um, and, and that would be, and that would be because the gene or gene construct that is engineered for resistance would move about in pollen and, and end up in a wide variety of uh, trees with different genetics. Is that is that a good? Is that fair to say that? Yeah, and I think that when it comes to saving a tree that would otherwise be uh, eliminated, that could that's a good thing. Um, but I also really want to emphasize that most of the uses for biotechnology and restoration uh, have nothing to do with genetic engineering. Uh, so there's a lot of different potential uh, uh, ways that biotechnology is being used uh, that won't result in uh, transgenic trees. So one example of that would be looking at rapid cycle breeding. Uh, so rapid cycle breeding would be in a testing phase, so we mentioned that traditional tree breeding takes a long time, and that's one of the major limitations, is that trees could take anywhere from, you know, five to seven years to reach flowering. So you really are slowed down by that. Uh, rapid cycle breeding is the temporary changing of the tree's uh, genome uh, to cause it to flower earlier. So typically that's done um, by introducing some genes uh, in a laboratory setting that um, then would create a genetically engineered tree, but just in those testing phases. And the offspring of that tree aren't uh, genetically engineered. So you can really speed up uh, that whole breeding process. Uh, another way that biotechnology is being used would be with chemical fingerprinting or using molecular markers to try to identify trees that are resistant or have particular traits that you care about. So um, with chestnut, if we could have screened um, more efficiently uh, all the trees that were going into the initial breeding programs using our, our present techniques to see which ones might be resistant and which ones uh, were less likely to be resistant, that would have saved a lot of uh, work on the front end. So now people are using uh, chemical fingerprinting to compare resistant individuals and uh, susceptible individuals to see if we can learn from that and use that information uh, to restore American chestnut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, these are good points. Um, you know, and, and to, just to reiterate, uh, it, the uh, you, you've made the point that many uses of biote biotechnology exist that are not necessarily genetic engineering, and, and uh, the, you gave the example of rapid cycle breeding and also molecular markers. And I want to stress uh, for listeners that molecular markers are it, you know, that whole science is a very advanced use of genetic uh, knowledge, but it. It, uh, it's, it can be used and is used to help in, you know, very classical kinds of uh, conventional breeding. And so you're saying the same is true for, for trees as, as much as it is for uh, field crops. So. Definitely, definitely. And one other really cool application of um, the biotechnology toolbox towards forest restoration 
that I just heard of recently is uh, a project using RNA interference or RNAi to help control the emerald ash borer. So the emerald ash borer is an insect that's wiping out ash trees uh, throughout the Midwestern and Eastern forests. Um, Basically, I think in forests that have been affected by this, um, after the ash borer goes through, all of the ash trees will be gone. So RNAi uh, is a natural process that uses, uh, that silences or turns off genes that are potentially unwanted or harmful. Uh, so this is already existing in the plant, but through biotechnology, scientists can use that existing pathway to defend them from particular threats uh, like insects or viruses and potentially breed trees with, uh, without uh, undesirable characteristics. So what's happening right now in the uh, RNAi uh, emerald ash borer world is that they've found that there are some uh, uh, RNA uh, constructs that will be lethal to the emerald ash borer. So you could use those either as an application, a spray that could be used as a really targeted uh, biopesticide, so it won't affect other insects, just the emerald ash borer, or you could even genetically modify ash trees to make them resistant to the emerald ash borer in that way. But I think that illustrates that um, genetic modification isn't the only way that biotechnology is being used. It's one of them, and it's part of that whole toolbox, uh, but there are many other ways that uh, forest restoration is being assisted by our uh, new molecular techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you've made that point very well, and I'm glad, glad for that. So, you know, just as a plant pathologist, uh, I, you know, I see uh, rather substantial threats, um, you know, to forests and other uh, agroecosystems uh, from invasive pathogens or infectious agents as well as invasive insect pests and I, I know you're aware of this and there you know there's quite a list the woody woolly helmwalk adelgid uh you worked with sudden oak death in uh, california and uh you know there's just I, I i i think it's a little bit maybe a little bit cynical but also realistic to to uh worry about the um or pessimistic maybe not cynical but pessimistic to worry about uh, the pace of, of uh, the introduction of invasive organisms. And, and I, 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 uh, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's my perspective or bias, if we want to call it that, is that I think that genetic tools of all sorts are going to have to be part of the future if we're going to, uh, you know, defend our, our forests uh, against um, the many invasive threats that exist or probably will continue because there's so much plant movement throughout the world. And globalization has had many benefits, but it's also been uh, a, a good way to move around uh, unwanted um, organisms. So um, anyway, what do you what do you think about all that? What's your re thoughts about um, invasive oh. pests in general and insects and so on? I don't think you're being pessimist pessimistic. I think you're being realistic. Um, invasive species are only going to increase uh, with increased global movement. Um, and as we have a, a changing climate, there's going to be uh, invasive 
uh, threats to these trees, other stressors. Mm -hmm. So they are increasingly uh, under stress. And so we're going to need better tools to deal with that. Um, One of the things we haven't talked about yet are invasive plants. So while those aren't directly uh, infecting or or damaging the tree, uh, they are a serious threat to a lot of our forested areas. Uh, So they can prevent regeneration of new species, uh, of of, uh, native species, prevent seedlings from being able to come up and grow. And hopefully we can turn to the genetic toolbox again for some new management approaches for invasive plant species. Because what we're doing right now, uh, trying to control them with herbicide, uh, that's really uh, not a long-term sustainable solution. Um, Once something arrives, uh, you can eradicate it or try to to keep it from getting here. But once an invasive plant is established, it is really challenging to manage it at a, at a regional level. And so one of the, the options that's been suggested to manage invasive plants that hasn't been tried yet would be using a gene drive approach yes. to introduce something negative into these invasive plants to kind of reduce their competitive ability compared to some of our native species. So gene drive, uh, for anyone who's not familiar, is adding some negative genes uh, that are then kind of propagate themselves more than a gene normally would. So it will create a a homozygous uh, copy of itself in that genome and be passed down to future generations at a much higher level than a gene normally would. So could we use a gene drive technology to push through uh, something that would make, say, bush honeysuckle less competitive? Um, It's a possibility. Again, you know, there are a lot of questions related to this, uh, but we're definitely looking for better solutions than what we currently have. Yeah, gene drives. Thanks for bringing that up. And um, gene drives, just for, for those of you who are new to that phrase, that is that is quite distinct from engineering um, plants for better plant health, for example, pest resistance or disease resistance and so on. Um, gene drives are, are uh, quite different and they're meant to propagate and and cause some degree of harm to the the organism that's been engineered. So that I, I just want to make sure everyone is dis, uh, clear on the distinction between those two. And gene drives uh, make uh, make uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, they have quite a bit of uh, a controversy surrounding their use. So uh, you know, and, and so we're, we'll we'll continue to follow that debate and maybe even have uh, somebody come and speak to us about uh, gene drives in our talking biotech. Oh, I love that. I'd love to hear more about that. What a good idea. I'm going to make a note. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, gene drives. Uh, All right. So we'll we'll put that in the the list. Um, I I like the way you've used the phrase genetic toolbox. I want to highlight that. That's a great phrase. And and is there anything else you'd like listeners to to know before we uh, close uh, the interview? I think that there are many threats facing our forests, and we need to be looking everywhere for potential solutions, not that we need to take all of them. So there's a lot of research being done that uses biotechnology, um, and we need to, as a society, figure out what are our priorities and how do we want to solve some of these problems. So do we want to just leave things the way that they are and accept that we're going to be losing a lot of these tree species, the benefits that they give us, as well as the environment? 
or um, do we want to take a more proactive approach? And if so, what will that be? Um, so fortunately, we are getting an increasing uh, number of different ways to potentially uh, deal with some of these threats. Um, but we need to decide together how we're going to pursue that. Yeah. Yeah. Good conversation and public engagement, uh, not... Uh not lecturing, which is our, our tendency as scientists or my tendency as a scientist, but to engage the public. So I, I think you've hit on a very good point. If they want to know more about your work, where would you send listeners? You can go to foresthealthcenter.org. Uh, um, you'll find uh, information about our center and the different researchers that are there. We try to kind of produce summaries of some of the research projects that are in language that'll be easily understandable. I know sometimes their scientific papers are, are less intelligible. So hopefully that'll be a good resource for anyone who wants to learn more. Great. Well, Ellen, it's been a pleasure to, to interview you. I enjoyed working with you and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll carry on with our work together. I appreciate you joining us on the program. Great. Thanks for having me on, Paul. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech, write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to, look, to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I am Paul Michelli and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.